0: pray with me please father wow christ the sinless holy son of god becoming like a sinner for us every one of our sins every single one even the ones no one else knows about and jesus dies as though he himself had committed each of those sins. What a love. What a cost. And that's the only reason we can stand forgiven. It's at the cross. Help us to understand the amazing grace of that forgiveness, the freedom and the power of that forgiveness. Show us Jesus in all of his grace, and in all of his glory, as we hear now from him some very, very hard words, but also some very assuring and comforting words, promising forgiveness. So show us Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen. Thank you to our team. You may be seated. Thank you for singing with me this morning and for allowing me to sing with you. I love singing together. I would encourage you to open your copies of the scriptures, please, to Mark chapter 3 this morning. Mark chapter 3, as we continue our look through the book of Mark and we make our walk through the book of Mark. Um, and as you're turning there, let me just share with you a couple of personal notes. And I share these with you because I consider you family. You are our Family, We spend so much more time with you than we do our own biological family. So these are the reasons I share these things with you. Um, Number one, if you'll look onto the screen. Now, isn't that awesome? This is the best looking grandson in the world. And so he's about 11 weeks now. And we've already decked him out in... um, his Memorial Day weekend outfit. So uh, we just love this little guy. We haven't been able to see him for about nine weeks or 10 weeks now. Not that we're counting, but um, we we just love him. We're thankful for the gift of new life. God is so good. Uh, And then some of you already know, but uh, th- this past week has been a hard week around the Fields household. On Friday morning, we woke up and it became apparent that we had we're going to have to put our dog Ruby down. And so it was a rough day Friday, a rough day yesterday. And you're like, she's a dog. Well, yes, she's a member. She was a member of our family. She was so faithful. And even I would I would encourage you, even in the little things. Things like animals, pets, everyday stuff. See the grace and the goodness of our good God. Um, so we've been dealing with uh, the effects of death over the past couple of days, and it reminds me, I think one of the reasons God gives us pets is, and they don't live as long as we do, so we're, we're reminded that that life is short. Um, and even though a the death of an animal or a pet hurts. There is, there is something, something more eternal that will hurt eternally more, and that is that we die without knowing Jesus. So I say to you this morning, as we begin in Mark chapter 3, what we're talking about today has eternal implications. This is one of these texts that should should reach out from the pages of scripture and grab you around your heart and just say pay attention. This really matters. This is one of the hardest texts in the Bible. This is a text that's hard to preach and I know it's a text that's going to be hard to hear. So I say to you this morning, please fasten your theological seatbelts and work hard at staying engaged because this is a heavy text. It's, it's full of an eternity of implications. And so I cannot overstate how significant these words are, even though they are very hard words to hear. Because this text is about what many referred to as the unpardonable sin. The unforgivable sin. And what's crazy is that so many people in our world today have at least heard something about the unpardonable sin. They may not know anything else about the Bible. They may not even know John 3.16 other than the words on a sign that's held up behind the goalpost at a football game. But they've at least heard something about the unpardonable sin. And I've been a pastor long enough to have been asked multiple times by multiple people in multiple situations, what is the unpardonable sin? And inevitably that question is followed up by a second question, how do I know whether or not I've committed the unpardonable sin? We will answer those questions this morning. But the main point of this text in Mark chapter 3 isn't so much about identifying the unpardonable sin. It's about the identity and the mission of Jesus. It's always about Jesus. Anytime you open your Bible, Jesus is the point. And so let's see Jesus this morning in all of his grace and in all of his glory. Let's begin reading the text in verse 20 of Mark chapter 3. And then Jesus went home and the crowd gathered again so that they, that is Jesus and his disciples, could not even eat. And when his family heard this, they went out to seize him for they were saying about him that Jesus is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called them to him. That is, he called the scribes, the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders. He called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds that strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, and here's the point of the text right here, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but... Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Why did Jesus say that? Here's why, verse 30. Because they, that is the scribes and Pharisees and religious leaders, were saying, He has an unclean spirit. This is the word of our God. So, this morning, the big idea of this text isn't about the unforgivable sin. It's that there is forgiveness available for sin because our God delights in forgiving sin. Amen? He is a sin-forgiving God. That's his heartbeat. And he's proven it by sending Jesus The power of the cross that we've just sung about proves that the heartbeat of the father of Jesus is to forgive our sins. Now, I get that, you know, on the screen you see God delights in forgiving sins. I get that that isn't a real catchy big idea that you'll probably remember for very long, but it's an eternally important big idea. Because whether or not your sins are forgiven is the eternal difference between heaven and hell. And the good news that's often missed in the bad news of this text is what we've already read this morning from Psalm 86, verse 5. Listen to this For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving. Abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. You see, one of the big ways that God demonstrates his goodness and his steadfast love to us is through his forgiveness. I mean, totally forgive, for, total forgiveness. I mean, slate, completely clean forgiveness. Eternal forgiveness. Not just today and tomorrow forgiveness, but always and forever forgiveness. And for sinners, that is the greatest news of all, that our God delights in forgiveness. And let's be honest this morning, we do too. It's something we long for. It's something we love. There is nothing quite like being forgiven. Nothing quite so freeing. I remember back to when I was 10 or 11 years old, and I know you're going to find what I'm about to tell you so hard to believe about me. But I remember saying something so horrible to a friend of mine. I said it about that friend to that friend's face. And I remember, I still remember saying it today. It wasn't just what I said, it was how I said it. It was meant to sting. It was meant to hurt. It was meant to harm. And when I got home, mom met me at the door. And she said, Kenneth... You aren't coming into this house until you tell me what you just said to Greg because his mom just called me. I'm not a big fan of Alexander Graham Bell. And so I told her what I had said to Greg, and then she said this, Kenneth, you're going to ride your bike back over to his house, and you're going to ask his forgiveness. I still remember That was the longest and hardest eight-block bike ride of my life. But when I got there and asked forgiveness and Greg forgave me, the bike ride back home was the best eight-block bike ride of my life. I still remember the feeling, the joy, the relief The powerful freedom of forgiveness. And listen, friends, that's why Jesus came to us. He came for us to grant everyone who believes on Him that eternal freedom of forgiveness. It is an eternal eight block bike ride now for us. Wow. That freedom. But as we celebrate on this Memorial Day weekend, we know that freedom isn't free. It's costly. It's infinitely costly. It will cost Jesus everything to give us freedom and forgiveness. It will cost Him His life. He will die as a sacrifice for our sins, but it will also cost Him His reputation. The suffering that wins our eternal forgiveness isn't just about what Jesus endures on the cross. It's about what he endures on his way to the cross. Isaiah 53 verse 3 says that Jesus is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And that source of that sorrow and that grief isn't just the things that are done to him, it's the things that are said about him. Hurtful things untrue things, shocking things, like your family coming and saying in verse 21 that Jesus has gone mad and then immediately following hard on the heels of the family saying that Jesus has gone mad, the Jewish religious leaders come out and say, Jesus is bad. You ever thought about that? The suffering Jesus endures the sorrows he feels, the grief he's acquainted with, because of what people say about him? You say, but Pastor Ken. Yeah, it's like Jesus walks around with the shield around him. He is God. Oh, yes. But never overlook the fact that he is also human. You ever had people say evil and untrue things about you? Lies spread, false accusations made. Jesus knows what it's like to be on the receiving end of all of that because the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders are making multiple accusations against Jesus. And I want you to notice in this text, these aren't just one-time statements. These aren't just one-time accusations. The verb tense here indicates that these are ongoing, unrelenting, repeated accusations. Because as they say, if a lie is repeated often enough, eventually people will begin to believe it. And that's why the Jewish religious leaders are going public with their claims now that Jesus, get this, that Jesus is possessed by Beelzebul. I get that Beelzebul isn't a word that we see very often in the Bible, and it probably isn't a word that we use in everyday conversation, but it literally means the Lord of the flies or the Lord of dung. It's a reference to Satan. And so the religious leaders here are pulling out all the stops, and they're spreading the rumor that Jesus is possessed by the devil himself. Now, why would the Jewish religious leaders say that? Why are they making this point? Why are they spreading this rumor? Well, remember what's going on here. Jesus is essentially wiping out disease and demon possession throughout all of northern Israel. And so the scribes and the Pharisees can't deny the supernatural power of Jesus because there are thousands of formerly sick and formerly demon-possessed people walking around as proof that Jesus possesses supernatural power. So what do they do? What do the scribes and Pharisees do? They attempt to get out in front of the story. They're going to spin this thing. They're going to create their own, their own narrative, and they're going to say this. Hey, hey, everybody, we can't deny that something supernatural is being done by Jesus. But we're going to give you the inside scoop on Jesus. Jesus is not getting supernatural healing power from God in heaven. He's getting it from the devil in hell. That's their story, and they're going to stick to it. Now, that's quite a significant accusation, right? I mean, as badly as we've been hurt by false accusations and rumors and lies, we've never faced anything like what Jesus faces here. I mean... Now I, I I just shared with you a story. I was not the best kid growing up. Now when I write my mom and dad, whether it's an email or a card or any uh, any means of communication, I always sign it the same way. My my sign off is this: "Your number one son." I'm the eldest. I mean, I'm just speaking the truth. I'm just reminding them of the truth. But both mom and dad would tell you that of all three boys, I was probably the hardest to raise. But I've never had mom or dad as as bad as I was and as angry as they were with me and my sin. They have never said, Kenneth, you are demon possessed. They may have thought it, but they never said it. Can you imagine how deeply these accusations must hurt the heart of Jesus? how revolting these accusations are to the soul of Jesus. He is the infinitely holy, sinless Son of God who's come to undo and overpower what Satan has done. 1 John 3 verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And now Jesus is being accused of healing and casting out demons by the power of the devil? Oh, how his soul must bristle at these words. These aren't just outlandish accusations, they are outright devilish accusations. And can I ask, if you would have been Jesus, how would have you responded I was thinking about that this week and prepping this. I think I would have said to the scribes and Pharisees and religious leaders, okay, that's enough. You've gone too far. I am shutting you down right here, right now, and then I would have zapped instantaneously zapped these scribes and Pharisees into oblivion. Let me ask you, could Jesus have done that? Has he proven that he has the power to do that? Yes, he does. But Jesus doesn't do that. It isn't vengeance Jesus seeks here. It's mercy Jesus shows here. By answering the Pharisees' two accusations with two illustrations. Two masterful and impactful parables. I mean, aren't you just blown away by the practical, everyday wisdom of Jesus? Listen, Jesus isn't just book smart. He's street smart. He always knows exactly what to do, exactly what to say. He doesn't even need to huddle up with his 12 apostles whom he has just called to follow him and to go out for him. He doesn't bring them in and say, hey guys, let's huddle up and um, uh, what do we do now? How do we respond? We can't just let these accusations kind of float in midair. We've got to respond to them. So anybody have some wisdom here that I can draw upon? Jesus doesn't say that at all. No, Jesus, notice, Jesus instantaneously has a handle on this situation. Nothing surprises him. Nothing catches him off guard. Nothing throws him for a loop. He's got this. And that's something we need to hear. That's something we need to know because there are so many situations in our everyday lives where we don't know what to do. We're unprepared. Like when you're a first-time parent and your two-year-old begins throwing a major temper tantrum right in the middle of Walmart. Or your teen begins asking hard questions about life and death and school shootings. Or when your husband comes home from work to tell you that he's quit his job. Or he comes home from work to tell you that he's quitting on you. Where do you turn? Where do you go? For answers to those tough questions. The good news for believers in Jesus is that we know the one with all the answers to all of life's questions. Jesus has the answer key. In fact, Jesus is the answer key. So in the toughies of everyday life, let's lean into Jesus' wisdom by going to his word. It's Psalm 119, verse 130. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. You believe that? That's me. I'm I'm simple. I need wisdom that's beyond me and insight that exceeds my perspective. And that's what we see right here in Jesus in living color when he answers these accusations. Guys, you're accusing me of being possessed by Satan. But but how can Satan cast out Satan? Satan. It's just plain ludicrous. It's absurd. It's illogical. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house is not going to be able to stand. I mean, it's just conventional wisdom. So conventional that how many times in our lifetimes have we heard this about America? United we stand. All right, we'll try that one more time. All right, I know you weren't ready. So united we stand, divided we fall. We've all been there, right? Part of an an athletic team or a work team or a church family, and there are members of the team who go rogue and turn on their teammates, and what happens? Everything disintegrates. It falls apart. That's what Jesus is saying here. Satan is not going to be attacking Satan. He is the epitome of evil, yes, but he's not the epitome of stupidity. So it can't be Satan empowering Jesus to cast out Satan's demons. Because secondly, notice here, that you can't, you can't plunder a strong man's house without first binding the strong man. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever had your home broken into and plundered. But when I was 10 or 11 years old, now, I was preparing this this week. I'm like, a lot of stuff happened when I was 10 or 11 years old. Um... When I was 10 or 11, our home was broken into, and when dad came home, the perpetrator was pulling out of our driveway with a bunch of our stuff in his vehicle. Now, if you remember meeting my dad, he's no small guy. He's six foot two, two fifty and if that thief had entered our home while dad was there, he would have had to overpower dad before he could ever begin plundering our possessions. And that's precisely what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that Satan is the strong man. That Satan is guarding his possessions But here's the good news, is that Jesus is the stronger man who's come to plunder Satan's house and to free people living under under Satan's authority. People who are in bondage to sin and to death and to hell. And Jesus has come to eternally release them from their bondage to Satan. But Jesus cannot do that without first overpowering and binding Satan. So how does Jesus do that? Well, we've seen it a little bit in Mark's gospel. I mean, Jesus overpowered Satan in the wilderness during those 40 days and nights of temptation from Satan because Jesus doesn't give in. Win for Jesus. And then Jesus is freeing people of their demons. Win, win, win for Jesus. But ultimately, Jesus will bind Satan by doing something shocking. Jesus will win by dying. He will plunder Satan's house by laying down his own life and giving himself up for us and then rising again on the third day victorious over sin and over death and over the devil. It's what we read in Colossians 2 verses 13 through 15. God made us alive. We were once dead in Satan's house as Satan's possessions but God made us alive together with Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And how did he do that? He canceled out, God canceled out the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, the condemnation we deserved. It was nailed to the cross. And in doing so, God disarmed the rulers and authorities, that is, the devil and his minions. And he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. Yes! Forgiveness, freedom, release. From Satan's power and Satan's authority, Jesus has, through the cross, bound Satan and risen again, triumphant over Satan. Amen? We are free. Through the forgiveness won for us in Jesus. But maybe maybe you're questioning that here this morning. And so I need to ask you a big question. Have you been freed from sin and death and hell by the love and the mercy and the grace of Jesus? There is only one way that can happen forgiveness. It's the only way we're free. Listen to this from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Christ also suffered once. He suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might free us from the house of Satan and bring us into the house of God. And when you repent and you trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior and King, your sins will be forgiven. Your slate wiped totally clean, completely and eternally clean. You say, how? How do I get that forgiveness? Galatians 3 verse 26. Here's how you go from being a part of Satan's house to becoming a part of God's house. We are all the children of God. Here's how. By faith in Christ Jesus. You say, P.K., P.K., there's so many bad things I've done. There's so many big sins I'm struggling with even right now. Will God really forgive me all those sins when simply I believe on Jesus? Well, I won't answer your question because Jesus does answer your question right here in verse 28 where Jesus gives us the applications to the illustrations in response to the accusations of the scribes and Pharisees. And Jesus makes us this promise. I would ask you to underline or circle verse 28 because this is the big verse in this text. All sins, Jesus says. All sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. So there you have the answer to your question when I place my faith and trust in Jesus. Will he really forgive all my sins? Yes. Jesus says you have Jesus word on it. The one who endures these accusations and then dies to redeem you says to you Every one of your sins will be forgiven when you trust in Jesus. And so here's my question Will you? Will you trust Him? But maybe you're still thinking, Pastor Ken, you you can't stop there because of what we read in verse 29. It's not the end of the story. Pastor Ken, you've got to keep going because Jesus goes on to say that whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit and and this is one of the saddest, toughest sentences in all of the Bible. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty Of an eternal sin. Now, these are hard words. And and they're hard words because these words have been the source of much confusion and consternation for many down through the years. And so it's essential that we get this right. Jesus, listen carefully, Jesus is not saying that unbelief, like the Pharisees are, are not believing in Jesus. Jesus is not saying that unbelief is the unforgivable sin. Because let me ask you, weren't we all at one time unbelievers in Jesus? So it's not simply unbelief that is the unpardonable or unforgivable sin. All of us were there. All of these followers who are following Jesus were once there. Others say that the unforgivable sin is falling away from Jesus after you've believed in Jesus. But that would contradict so many of the precious promises God gives us in His Word that believers in Jesus are forever secure in the grace of Jesus. It's Romans 8 verse 1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no, and that's perpetual present tense, no condemnation, none, not ever, forever. And so it can't mean that that if someone falls away from Jesus after believing in Jesus, that they have forfeited their salvation in Jesus. So what is this sin that will never be forgiven? Well, Jesus identifies it right here. It's the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And that's why you need to see how closely verse 30 is connected to verse 29. Because in verse 30... We have the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit defined. It's identified by Jesus in verse 29 and then defined in verse 30. It's believing that Jesus has an unclean spirit, that he's possessed by the devil. It is so hardening your heart against Jesus that in spite of all the information you're getting from Jesus, you so harden your heart against him that you attribute his power to Satan rather than to the Holy Spirit. That's blaspheming the Holy Spirit, because it's in the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is doing these miracles. Now, please, please listen carefully. And this is where I want to pastor you well. If your heart is so tender that you are questioning and wondering whether or not you have committed this sin, The very fact that you wonder about this is a good sign that you haven't committed this sin. Because the people to whom Jesus is speaking directly here, the Pharisees, they aren't wondering, have I committed this sin? And that's important that we get here. Notice that Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders. Jesus isn't speaking to his followers here. He's not speaking to those who are believing in him and following after him. He is speaking to those who are hardening, continually hardening their hearts against Jesus in unbelief. So I say all of that to say this. When you take these words in their context, it is obvious that a genuine believer in Jesus could never commit this sin. Now, that doesn't mean that what we read here doesn't impact us. That there aren't implications here for us or takeaways for us to to learn from this passage. There are. There are three of them. The first is this As a follower of Jesus, who is incapable of committing this sin of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, we learn from this text to still guard our hearts. Guard our hearts. Jesus gives us this, this, this very hard warning about a hardened heart because he's a loving and merciful Savior. And he's giving us this, this vivid picture of just how dangerous sin is so that we will have a holy fear of how dangerous it is and what it can do to our hearts. Listen, just because we're believers in Jesus doesn't mean we don't any longer fight against sin. We do. And so we must take Proverbs 4, verse 23 to heart. Guard your heart with all vigilance because out of it flows the springs of life. Are you guarding your heart? Do you take sin seriously? Let me give you some intensely practical ways you can guard your heart. Number one, stay in God's word. Number two, stay around God's people. Number three, stay aware of your own sins. Not in a self-defeating, self-condemning kind of way, but in a grace-claiming, sin-confessing kind of way. Live in repentance mode. Guarding your heart by always turning from your sins and turning back to God when you find yourself in sin. Always guard your heart so that, secondly, you can live in the freedom and power of forgiveness. I really want you to leave this morning basking in the freedom and the power and to know how great the grace of forgiveness is. Listen to this from Ephesians 1, verses 7 and 8. In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace, get this, which he lavished upon us. He didn't just sprinkle us with his forgiving grace. He didn't just, you know, give us a bit of it and say, well, hope that's good enough. No, he lavishes his people with his forgiving grace. As a child of God, you are lavished with the grace of God. That's where we live. Not in fear, not in doubt, but in assurance and confidence that the amazing grace of our God has been lavished by him in his grace upon us forever. We don't live under condemnation. We live in the grip of grace. And there is no joy, there is no freedom, there is no power like knowing that your sins are eternally forgiven. So I want to challenge you. How often do you think about this? How often do you just muse on the forgiveness of our God? So I want to challenge you here. Would you, every day, by his grace, would you ask God to grow your, your awareness of his forgiveness? It's your freedom from the penalty of your sins. It's your power to fight against those sins. It's the joy that will overwhelm the pull of those sins. And that's a call to, thirdly, worship Jesus. That's the one thing these Pharisees and scribes would not do. Even when Jesus is patient with them, even when he won't turn his back on them and just walk away from them, he is willing to save them if only they will come and trust in him. And two of the Pharisees will. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. They will come to him and Jesus will receive them and he will forgive them. So see how powerful the forgiving grace of our Jesus is. It's capable of softening even the hardest heart. See the patience and the willingness and the love of Jesus for you. And all the accusations that he endures for you. On his way to the cross to die for you. Worship Jesus. By looking unto Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated now at the right hand of the throne of God. And it's all for your forgiveness. So guard your heart by living in the freedom and power of forgiveness that will inspire you and call you to worship the Jesus who has won your forgiveness forever. Amen. Father, may you write these truths deeply within our hearts, assuring us, confirming to us that what you have promised you will do, that forgiveness means forgiveness. Slate wiped totally clean Forever. Help us to believe. Can I ask you this morning, have you believed? Are you right now trusting in the Jesus who promises that all sins will be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter? If you will believe, you can know That you have not forgiven, you you have not committed that sin that will not be forgiven. Would you come to Jesus now? Trust Him right where you are. Draw a line in the sand and cross over that and say, I am trusting my eternity to Jesus. I believe, I believe He died on the cross for my sins so that I could have forgiveness. And Christian, are you guarding your heart? Are you living in the freedom and the power of your God's good forgiveness? And are you worshiping him, looking to him, the one who has won your forgiveness forever? Thank you, our God, for your son, Jesus. In his name I pray, amen.